0: Welcome to The Bill Bennett Show, the podcast translating President Trump, taking an honest look at the current administration and exposing the existential threats to America. I am not Dr. Bill Bennett. I'm Claude Jennings, the producer of the show. Dr. Bennett is on travel, but we were able to uh, still a little bit of his time. Uh, and you'll hear from Dr. Bill uh, on this show. You're going to hear a conversation uh, that Bill had with Martha McCallum, Fox News anchor. Uh, they talked about her new book, Unknown Valor a story of family, courage, and sacrifice from Pearl Harbor to Iwo Jima. Of course, if you want to email the show, you can do so at BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. The website is com. Feel free to pass that along to family and friends. Maybe catch up on some uh, past episodes if you're in the house uh, and need to find some things to do. So here's uh, Dr. Bennett's conversation with Martha McCallum, Fox News anchor. Uh, They talked about her uh, new book, Unknown Valor, a story of family, courage, and sacrifice from Pearl Harbor to Iwo Jima. Here's that conversation. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Bill Bennett Show. I want to talk to you about your book. It's an extraordinary book.
1: It really is an extraordinary book. Thank you. And it's an extraordinary book about war and battle. And I've read a lot of them. And the fine texture of your descriptions uh is it's really extraordinary. I mean I've read all the Civil War books, a lot of the World War Two books and uh you really you really have it. You really have it nailed it. so I, I wanna congratulate yes, you on thank that. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Bill. Uh
1: my own background here, I guess, is that the the, the Naval War Memorial, the Uojiwa Memorial, as we called it. I grew up in Arlington, Virginia and we used to go there uh and visit it and it was actually a place where teenagers used to go and park, you know. Remember parking? You <laughs> may be too young for that. But but uh, <laughs> no, I do. it was a quiet quiet and dark place. But um, it's an extraordinary monument. And then for me, it became even more extraordinary when our our younger son joined the Marine Corps. Um yeah. Let's let's get into the story your way. Um, the, the the personal connection to t- tell the audience, to tell my audience about Harry uh, and Gubich.
2: Well, absolutely. Well, thank you. Um, Harry Gray was like so many other young men across the country. Uh, during World War II, and that's really why I write about him, because to me, he represents so many young men in this country. Uh, he was 18 years old, graduated from Arlington High School, and went to enlist. He had been wanting to enlist since he was 16, and he, like so many other young men, you know, stood in line, wrapped around the building after Pearl Harbor, and decided that they wanted to join the war effort. Um, you know, I think one of the things that just struck me, when I, when I was growing up, and hearing that he had been killed at Iwo Jima when I was a little kid. It didn't mean much to me at all. I didn't understand what it meant. And as I got older and started to dig into the history and to read the letters that he wrote, I was just so touched by them. And later on in life, when I started to, you know, dig into the history of the war and— films like Saving Private Ryan, I thought of him when I saw all of these young men who die on the beaches who are not even part of the storyline, and I thought, for every one of those young men, there's a family attached to that person, and I know that that resonates with people all across the country, so I really tell his story as a way to sort of pay homage and honor the story that is so universal for so many Americans, but, you know, his letters are simple. He's an 18-year-old, but they're beautifully written. And he talks about training in Paris Island and then heading to Guam. At one point, he would put his mother's middle initial. He would just, you know, insert an initial for the island that he was on. And one of the things that surprises me when he gets to Iwo, he just says it in his letter. He says, you know... I bet you're wondering where I am. Well, the place is called Iwo. Uh, And somehow that letter got through the censors. Um, It's a a tragic end for Harry, but an also um, amazing experience as I was doing this research and and was able to actually locate two of the young men, Charlie Gubish and George Coburn, who have become friends and um, sort of we've kind of rebuilt that circle of friendship that they had in the military and, and on Iwo Jima.
1: Yeah. Friendship forged in blood and struggle and uh, extraordinary. I, uh, Elaine, my wife, her father was uh, in the Navy, World War II, Commander Glover. He drove uh, an LST, I think that's the right verb, drove, um, mm-hmm. anyway, and, and used to tell us stories about letting the Marines out and then coming back and there being half the spaces were empty and the, and the, and, the, and yeah. the water was red. Uh, right yeah. from the beginning of the unloading of these of these vessels, you talk about the risk. I didn't know about the risk of getting into these odd boats and getting yes. out of these boats. Talk, talk about that.
2: Yes. Well, I mean, you could easily lose your life, and many people did, just going down the ropes uh, and getting slammed, you know, in between the boat and the landing vehicle. Yep. You know, the transport ship yep. and the landing vehicle was treacherous. Um, there were definitely uh, guys who fell off and were not able to be recovered. It you know, then there was also the situation where they went in to do the landing or they tried to get in to do the landing and the, everything was so clogged on the beaches that they couldn't land. So then they had to, right. you know, already wet and soaking and their equipment wet and soaking climb back up the ropes and into the transport vehicles, um, in order to, you know, wait the night to do it again, which was even more treacherous. And some of them just had right. to sleep in the landing vehicles overnight on the water. Uh, waiting to go in the next day. I mean, you know, just those circumstances, when you think about what that must have been like for these kids and the incredible strength and bravery that they had to endure it in and of itself before they even got to the island is extraordinary.
1: And then you talk about, I mean, an obstacle at every point. You know, they got to the island, they got Mm -hmm. to the beach, they were... Walking in this sand, which was like quicksand, they were sinking in it. You just—they yeah. have their equipment, their guns, and their weapons and their backpacks, mm-hmm. and they're just slogging along. Um, and yeah. when discovered, are, 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 are easy prey, are easy targets for the Japanese.
2: Absolutely. I mean, I went to Iwo Jima with veterans on the Reunion of Honor trip last year, and walked the beaches, went down to the water. You know, then went up the terrace, it takes a long time to get up yeah. those terraces. They're yeah. really long and deep. It's yeah. like the kind of yeah. illusion that happens when you look at a beach and it looks like it's close, and then you actually start doing it and you realize how long and far it is and they are you you just sort of slip down and the it, it's volcanic ash, so it has kind of a different consistency than than sand, and it is very tough to to traverse and then when they got up there. They really couldn't see the enemy in most cases because they were underground. There were 11 miles of caves that had been dug all over the island and the hills and, of course, famously in Mount Surabachi. The people who were there, uh, our guys say, you know, the enemy wasn't on Iwo Jima, they were in Iwo Jima,
1: yeah, and yeah,
2: absolutely. I mean, yeah. many of them never saw the enemy the whole time they were there. They just, you know, were being shot at constantly from every corner, um, and in many cases, they didn't see anybody. So
1: let's back up. Why were we on this godforsaken, there is no godforsaken yeah. place? Why was Iwo Jima this slag heap? Why was it important?
2: Well, you know, that was sort of my first question, and originally I was just going to write a book about about Iwo Jima, and then I realized, as I kept digging in, that I had to understand how, why, how and why they were there. So it really goes all the way back to Pearl Harbor, obviously, and the attack on Pearl Harbor, which was, you know, just instilled this immediate need on the part of Americans to enter the war, a war they never wanted to be part of in the first place, um, in the European theater, and we all know the history of Churchill and Lend-Lease and, you know, the reluctance of America to get involved in another world war. Um, But after Pearl Harbor, that all changed. And military strategists for decades had looked into the possibility of a battle, a showdown with Japan, because... After the Spanish-American War and World War One, we were sort of all in the same neighborhood because the United States uh, had the territories of Guam and the Philippines, which put us right in Japan's backyard. So war strategists felt that it was highly probable that, a, that some sort of confrontation might take place. They all thought it would, it would begin there, in Guam or in the Philippines, but, of course, it began on Pearl Harbor. Um, so the, the pervasive strategy that... Um, percolated to the top and was determined to be the, 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 pan, the plan was this stepping stone strategy and heading towards the Japanese mainland. You had MacArthur sort of going up to the west side and you had uh, Nimitz uh, going up to the right-hand side and taking those islands one by one. And it was a stepping stone to recover the island uh, and to secure the airstrips because they had to get these planes closer and closer to the Japanese mainland. And Iwo Jima was the second-to-last right before Okinawa. And Iwo Jima was is 650 miles south of Tokyo, so strategically it was the right spot. And the B-29s, which really you know came into the use, heavy use in, in the Pacific Theater, and not even in the beginning of the Pacific Theater, but about midway through, um, they were huge, enormous, super fortress, they were called, and they needed a yep. landing strip for repairs. And so that's why Iwo Jima became so important, because we were doing these bombing runs over Japan prior to any invasion of the mainland, which we know didn't happen. But um, those bombing runs were designed to, you know, force the capitulation of Japan, and those planes landed there. So the people who secured Iwo Jima, in essence, you know, there were there were 2,400 runs that used those airstrips in Iwo Jima after Iwo Jima was secured. And the estimate is that there were 24,000 crew members on those on those B-29s that were able to land there. Some of them were um, were damaged, heavily damaged. They would have gone down into the ocean. Uh, and so it provided them that really necessary place uh, from which to operate.
1: Right, right. Has this been second-guessed a lot? I don't know the literature on this.
2: Well, it has. I mean, some people think that Iwo Jima was not necessary, that they could have done what they did on the Iwo Jima from Saipan. Um, I know there are differing uh, opinions on that, and I, I sort of... I, I don't I didn't feel equipped to yeah. answer that question. I mean hindsight is always uh easy and when you look back on battles and there were places like Paleli, for example, I think there's a there's a decent argument that we didn't need to go to Peleliu, which of course turned out to be a really uh horrible, horrible battle. Um but from everything that oh. I all the work that I did, it seemed that Iwo Jima was was a necessary stepping stone.
1: Yeah. No, I think so. I think I think so as well. So uh, you, you, your narrative of, of their advance, advances and retreats, going forward, falling back, using the flamethrowers—fascinating—the uh, flamethrowers mm-hmm. because of the position of the of, of the Japanese as you describe, and the struggle these guys uh, these guys went through. Uh, we lost what sixty-eight hundred men. Is that what you said?
2: Yes, that twenty thousand. How many?
1: 20,000 wounded, and the Japanese losses.
2: About 21,000. There were only, I think, about 200 Japanese survivors on the island, because um, most of them who were surviving uh, committed suicide. That that was the the credo of the Japanese military at
1: the time. When I was going through the book, uh, Martha, I saw something, maybe I'm just not as literate in this stuff as I thought I was, but I saw something I'd never seen before which is the February 25th, 1945, picture uh, of the raising of the flag, um, which is not the iconic picture, right? Mm-hmm. The iconic picture mm-hmm. is October 20... Uh, I mean, not as, as of October 19, but the Joe Rosenthal's Pulitzer Prize-winning photo was, was when? That's the one we all know, right? That's the one that's on yeah. the stamp. That's the one that's commemorated in Arlington.
2: Correct. Um. The iconic image that Joe Rosenthal took was was uh, February 23rd, so it was D-Day plus four. Um, the landing was on February 19th, and the first image is a flag that went up that was smaller than the next flag that went up. And basically, uh, the commanders up from the beach said, "You know, you got to go get that flag. Right. We want to save that flag, and we're going to put up a bigger flag." Uh, so there are some wonderful photographs of the first flag raising and the one that's in the book uh has one of the marines just sort of standing watch with his yeah. uh, rifle as he is um protecting the flag yeah. raisers and there were there were grenades thrown at them uh at that location so it was a you know it was a pretty frantic scene um but both you know flag raisings there was a, some speculation that the second one was staged but it was it really was done uh in order to get a bigger flag up there um you know, forestry, yeah. he, yeah. the Secretary of the Navy was on the beach at the time, and he said, you know, when people see that flag, it's going to ensure
1: that the future
2: history of the United States Marines.
1: This uh, book, uh, Unknown Valor, worth um, just for these two pictures, I just was on it for five minutes looking at one and then the other. Were they both taken on February 23rd, 1942? They were.
2: They were both February 23rd.
1: So they made the flag it on the same day?
2: Yes, they did.
1: Wow. Yeah, the second one went up and, and shortly
2: uh, after the first.
1: And of the men pictured raising the flag, how many survived?
2: So, with the the, the famous flag raising photo that everyone knows, uh, three of those men were killed within days. So, February twenty third is there's there's five more weeks of battle after that flag raising. It was far from a victorious moment on Iwo Jima. It was the securing of Mount Suribachi, which. You know, I think some people felt even there at the time, you know, well, the rest of this should be pretty easy. But, of course, it wasn't. There was Hill 362 to take in Cushman's Pocket and the Turkey Knob and the Amphitheater and all these other brutal, brutal battles that were still to come. Harry Gray, my uncle, was killed on March 13th. And Dominic Grassi, who's also he's at, won the uh, mm-hmm. received the Navy Cross, was killed on March 8th. So there was there was a lot of fighting that came well after the flag raising.
1: You know, struck you mentioned those names. I'm reading the book, and these guys were their captains or the lieutenants, and these are guys that were 28, right? Young, young, right? 24, 28. Um, yeah. And, and one has one has to remember that. Go ahead.
2: Uh, absolutely. I mean, most of these guys were 17, 18, 19 years old yeah. for the most part, yeah. and a lot of the captains and second lieutenants were maybe 24. Some of them were you know, as old as 28, but um, most of them were just really young guys who were in leadership. And one of the sweet things that Charlie Gubish told me when I met him, he said, I remember Harry Gray. He said he was my buddy. And he said I was 24 and he was only 18, so he called me Pop. (laughs) Sure. And he said, yeah, he used to say to me when we were in the foxhole at night, he would say, Pop, you sleep. I'll watch.
1: Oh, yeah. Unbelievable. Page 193 of this book, folks, Unknown Valor, Mark McCallum. The imperial decision was to fight a bloody war of attrition, a war that would make the conquest of Japan so painful the Americans would opt for negotiation rather than Roosevelt's Mm -hmm. stated unconditional surrender and occupation. Final defensive efforts were to fortify Iwo Jima and Okinawa and turn them into massive killing fields. Iwo Jima's barren, blank, hostile terrain would be first. And it was a killing field. Yeah,
2: it was a killing field. And, uh, General Kurobayashi, who was a very well respected general, um, in Japan and, and even by, uh, by Harold Schmidt, who was the, you know, commanding officer on Iwo Jima, uh, respected him. He had, Kurobayashi had trained and learned and worked as a military attache in the United States. Um, and when he got to Iwo Jima, he discovered that he had not been told the whole story about how, dire the situation for the Japanese military was, he said, well, our ships will come in and they'll give us backup, and uh, the people who, you know, with the leadership on the island said that they're not, they're not coming, sir, they're, we don't have any Navy left. I mean, it's amazing when you look back at how limited the communication was at that time, plus in, in Japan there was a concerted effort to sort of not let people in on how bad things were, even up to that level. But Kurobayashi said, you know, we're going to make this very, very difficult. And, you know, he gave all of the instructions to the Japanese soldiers, take 10 Americans down before you die. Uh, and the idea was that they would force a capitulation. Uh, you know, the, the stated plan from Roosevelt was that there would be nothing short of unconditional surrender, on the Japanese side, but they still, they, they felt, I mean, really, that was the only thing that they had left, was the ability to try to make it so bloody and, and the loss was so great that the Americans would, you know, say, let's come to the table. Um, and that that's exactly what they did. You know, Robert Sherrod, who was a Time magazine a war correspondent and spent right. time uh, in in what we would call, you know, an embed now in covering the war. Uh, he was on Taipan, he was on Iwo Jima. He said, I never saw, you know, bodies come apart the way they did on that island. And that's saying a lot.
1: Yeah, it sure is. Um, it's very taken by uh, your description of uh, Father Suver, chaplain oh, of the yeah. 5th Marine Division. On that same February 23rd, he follows the men up the mountain and says, Mass on the craggy ridges of Suribachi, under the misty mm-hmm. skies amid the chaos of wars. So re- very good writing, Martha. Gosh, I thought you Thank were a you. talker. You, you are a writer. you're a writer. It's so really good writing. Thank you. I've written a couple of things myself. He would later say he could hear the Japanese murmuring in their case. Were they murmuring because he was saying mass?
2: <laughs> I, I don't know. You know, he was. No, no. Um, no, no. He, he told no, no. he told that story after he came down. But you know that story. One of the things that really struck me that I didn't you know didn't sort of anticipate was just how much faith there was in these stories. And when I read the letters that Dominic Rossi wrote and Harry Gray wrote, and, you know, all of them talked about about God and faith, and and when you learn that there were 19 Catholic priests on Iwo Jima with the Marines, I thought it was stunning. And there are accounts that there were times when these young men knew that they might not last that day, where they would give them communion, sometimes four and five times in one day, in in the battlefield, uh, yeah. which I just, I was so struck by, Bill. It's just, and it just sort of was as easy as their, as, the, as their breathing, you know, the way they spoke about this. It was just assumed that they had oh. to rely on their faith and on God and on prayer in those moments, and on these priests who were risking their own lives to be there. It was just incredible stories.
1: And there's a rabbi too, whom you quoted like
2: Yes, oh, absolutely. And there's a beautiful beautiful speech that was done by a rabbi at the end when they're all leaving the island, and they stopped to uh, have a service at the the, uh, 3rd and 4th and 5th Marine Division cemeteries. And these young men, you know, George Colburn, who I met, who lives in Florida, um, he said, you know, we're just like 18-year-old kids. We were at our prom six months ago, and they're standing in these cemeteries just weeping as we leave our buddies behind and that really beautiful sermon was given by uh by the rabbi at that spot and apparently there was some controversy and there was a separate sort of christian sermon that was also given somewhere else but but one of the things that that these men did i think overarchingly was that they ministered to everyone regardless of their faith and his the rabbi's sermon uh, i would urge people to look it up and read it It's really beautiful about how they served side by side, these young men, and they stood by each other as brothers, and they loved each other, and they gave the ultimate sacrifice, in many cases, saving each other. And then these young men who were going home really lived with that for the rest of their lives, and these men, 75 years later, to a man, you know, said, they're, they're just isn't a day that goes by that I don't think about these men. And when I reached George Colburn, finally found him at the, almost at the end of writing the book, he kept gnawing at me that I couldn't locate him. And when I finally did, I called him and I said, Hi, George, uh, this is Martha McCallum. I'm Harry Gray's niece. And he just went silent. And he yeah. said, Martha, I think about Harry Gray all the time. I think about him all the time. It was very moving. And, you know, he said, I often thought that Harry would have lived a better life than I did. And I said, "Why?" And he said, "You know, I, I had problems with drinking. I ruined my first marriage. You know, I it was I just it was hard." And then um, so recently, I got to meet him at the 75th anniversary of Iwo Jima in Washington D.C. in Arlington, and we were talking. And I met 19 members of his beautiful family, and I and they all admire him so much. And he's just an incredible father and grandfather to these family. You can just sure. see the love between all of them. I, sure. I said, George. Sure. You've lived a great life and look what you built with all of these family members. So that was that was pretty incredible.
1: That is pretty incredible. That is pretty incredible. It's an incredible story. It's a incredible part of American history. So I'm sorry to say it's a part of history. Our students don't know. that's uh, I know. That's for another that's for another time. That's for something for you yeah. to talk about so nice. Uh, you know, it's our worst subject. It's history, you know, in American schools, I and I uh,
2: couldn't agree more.
1: And they don't know it. They don't know. They don't know these stories. And I'm sorry to tell you, if they talk about World War II, they talk about, you know, prejudice and, you know, certainly there's prejudice and you know other things going on at home. And I know.
2: But, uh, you
1: know the, I know, the heroism and the story of, the, of these men is not told. And this is, you know, this is what encourages us about life, is to is to read about them like these. Let me ask you a last thing, because I, I, I opened by, um, by the way, Mark, I, I appreciate all your time. You see why I'm impatient with the three-minute interview. I love a longer. <laughs>
2: no, this is think, it's wonderful. Know? I appreciate you giving it no, I no, so much no, time no, to talk no. about it. I really do.
1: No, but I just, I just immersed myself in it and I got the book all marked up and now I'm going to get another one. So I want to keep this one and send it to my Marine son. But speaking of him, I had a, we had his platoon, platoon, not his platoon, his oldest buddies up from Quantico. And we were talking and one of the guys said, you know, Mr. Bennett, you know, you're a historian. Do you think we're not as great as the greatest generation? That was kind of a stopper of a question, you know. And I thought about it and I said, no, I believe you are. And I believe that if you were put to the same tests, you would do the same. And, of course, these are young men, you know, like you said, 18, 20, 22, 24. And they want to know what kind of men they are. And, you know, I think they were the kind of men, like the men that you talk about at Iwo Jima. I think they are, aren't they?
2: I think they are, too. I think they are, too. Um, It's just, you know, the difference is that there are so many men who don't make that choice and who don't. Understand the sacrifice yeah. that allowed them allows them to not make that choice. And um, no, yeah. I have a tremendous amount of respect for for these young Marines today, and I think they're incredibly uh, incredibly brave. And I'm so grateful for their service. I just wish that. Everybody else in their age group sort of understood the sacrifice that those young men make, and that the ones before them made.
1: You know, um, one of the one of the I don't want to end with this. One of the worst things I ever witnessed was uh, our son's graduation from Princeton, you know, good university. And the parents said, "Yes, yeah. what's, what's Joe going to do?" And we said, "He's joining the Marine Corps." And h- half the people said, "Oh my gosh, what happened?" You know, what he didn't get a job on Wall yeah. Street. I mean, you know. Uh, yes. what happened
2: I, no, no, I didn't what happened? Admire his voice
1: so Joe, much Joe said to me, you know I remember two two years earlier he said you know i 've gotten so much, I love this country, and um I think I want to give back go go ahead and give back, but parents there thought that something had gone wrong in his life that he wanted to take that Princeton education and join the marine Corps oh. and then when he was when he was a platoon leader, Martha, in uh, california um some of his guys, he said, I had mostly these poor guys. He looked me up on the internet and he said, Bennett, what are you doing here? You don't have to be here with us. You know, you got that big degree, man. What are you doing here? He said, oh, I like you, you know. Oh, that's great. They're so lucky to have him. And, you
2: know, I mean, those were the kind of guys that, that, well, not all of them, but a lot of men like that were the leaders in World War II, you know. I I was at the Nixon Library the other night, and we were talking about how President George H.W. Bush, uh, President Kennedy, President Nixon, and President Ford were all uh, officers in World War II, you know, and so many men who left uh, Cornell and Yale and all these other uh, great institution sure. at the time sure. um to, to become officers, including, you know, Hollywood guys. Cary Grant um flew that, planes that. and missions and uh Jimmy Stewart did the same thing. So uh, it, it was just sort of the pervasiveness across society that, that I think was, was so different.
1: Uh, Martha, thank you. Congratulations, Unknown Valor. It's a great read for a ton of reasons. I hope, folks, you, you see why.
2: Thank you so much, Bill. Grateful for your time, and always wonderful to talk to you. All the best.
1: Thank you.
0: You are listening to The Bill Bennett Show.
1: Stay current on the threat posed by China with our friends at Committee on the Present Danger China. Go to presentdangerchina.org,
0: Present Danger China org you're listening to the bill bennett, show. bill bennett show all right that was dr bennett with martha mccallum fox news anchor and uh, author of the new book unknown valor a story of family courage and sacrifice from pearl harbor to Iwo Jima. And that's just about it for this show. Thank you so much for tuning in. To catch up on previous episodes, go to thebillbennetshow.com. That's thebillbennetshow.com. You can also follow Dr. Bennett on Twitter at William J. Bennett and uh, like him on Facebook. Just search for Bill Bennett. You can email the show. I want to hear from you? It's uh, Bill Bennett Podcast at gmail.com. Please feel free to share the podcast with your family and friends. And Dr. Bennett will be back not only doing interviews with his guests, but hosting the show uh, next week.